Good morning. My name is Todd, and I'm one of the deacons here at Trinity. And uh, if this is your first time visiting, I'm glad that you're here, and welcome. Uh, At Trinity, we're preaching the word expositionally, which basically is just another way of saying verse by verse. So we have listening guides prepared with the the passage and the main points of the sermon on it. So if you'd like one, raise your hand, and uh, Alex will be glad to bring you one. So our passage today is Daniel 4, verses 28 through 37, and this ends the the passage of chapter 4, and so if you open your Bibles to there, we'll read it, I'll pray for us, and then we'll dig in. So Daniel 4, 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by by my mighty power, as a royal resident and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know the most high rules, the kingdom and men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like the bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever." For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the, most, among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and the splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, And I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we work through the book of Daniel that you would give us just ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray that... We'd be able to see its application for us as believers today from your truth being proclaimed thousands of years ago. It's in your name we pray, amen. So I was talked to about bringing the message sometime, I think around in March, and uh, David, one of our pastors, he said, well, you could really pick any time between now and July 28th. <laughs> 29th. <laughs> so I chose the last possible moment I possibly could. And, uh, and here I am. So <laughs> I have had plenty of time to prepare. So over the course of the past several weeks, we've seen a lot of changes in the circumstances involving uh, Daniel and, and Shadaniah and Meshach and Abednego. And uh, Shadrach, you should have been to go. So in any case, 
What we've seen is these, these, uh, these four Hebrews in the land of Babylon who were taken from their homes. And what we've seen is they're, they're basically flourishing there. And uh, amongst great adversity. So in the middle of, of all these different trials they've, they've had, including being thrown in a lit, burning furnace, we've seen them flourish. So we've come to a point where they're experiencing all these different trials and Nebuchadnezzar has been reigning for many years now. He's, he's going to be reigning for a total of 43 years, and it's going to be the longest Neo-Babylonian reign in the history of Babylon. And Daniel and his friends are known for their faithfulness, and God has equipped them as strangers in a strange land. And uh, they've not only survived, but again, they've flourished. And you may have heard that this is the, the Hebrew word for shalom. It's not just peace, it's peace and flourishing. Prior to us tackling Daniel, we're in the book of Ruth, where in contrast to Daniel, the main characters Ruth and Naomi did not flourish in a strange land, but instead met only heartache and persecution. We know that, that Ruth lost her husband and, and Naomi lost her sons and her husband. So they experienced the opposite of peace and flourishing. And yet because of Ruth's example and faithfulness, after they returned to Israel, where she was a stranger in a strange land, Israel. Uh, her life and her mother-in-law ch- lives changed dramatically when she met Boaz and he became the kinsman redeemer. So just as we can see God's hand traveling through that ark, through the ark from the time they leave and the time they come back, we can see God's hand traveling through this ark in Babylon as we watch King Nebuchadnezzar and we see Daniel go throughout time and, and basically uh, become the main prophet to the king. And keep this in mind as we travel through, time, through Daniel. Here too, if we look, we can see God using faithful people and kings throughout time. While God uses Nebuchadnezzar to bring judgment to the Israelites, dispersing them, God used Hebrews to witness the pagan kings who eventually play a pivotal role in returning the Jews to Jerusalem, rebuilding the gates and walls, and even restoring Bethlehem to prepare for another king coming a few centuries later. So today's passage is the last dream sequence uh, recorded in the book of Daniel for Nebuchadnezzar. This passage marked the end of Nebuchadnezzar's portion of scripture as we travel through the history of these four and King Nebuchadnezzar and other pagan kings that are going to come along behind him. Nebuchadnezzar is the first king that Daniel interacts with. And after chapter 4, we see the Hebrews meet Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, who will come to power after his father. In the first part, <coughs> excuse me. So in the first part of the passage, we see, we find King Nebuchadnezzar walking along the rooftop surveying all that belongs to him, which according to him is everything. He says, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? We see him declaring his own glory, marveling at everything he has made, proclaiming his glory. Even after God has revealed to him in a dream that he is a mighty tree, but a mighty tree that's about to be cut down. So if he is an oak, then God is an axe, or maybe a chainsaw. 
But we have this great thing called hindsight, and when we get a look at the Bible from the perspective of the other side of the cross, we can look back on our journey through Daniel, and we can see that the first four chapters are full of God's power being proclaimed in Babylon. We see that uh, these Hebrews in a foreign land display this great faith, unshakable faith in the face of various trials. And furnaces and death threats, yet they persevere. And again, they too appear to flourish, even when they change their diet to prove Yahweh's faithfulness. They flourished and even fattened up eating vegetables. The few times that I've eaten vegetables, I don't remember it fattening up. This kind of faithfulness can only be explained as the kind of faith demonstrated by true believers. These men have had an encounter with the living God, and the byproduct of that is trust and belief. Now, Isaiah 43 promises that when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And this is exactly what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they too were not burned. The Babylon city is full of people from all nations and regions. Babylon is a mighty empire, the kind of empire that gobbles up other empires. Yet among all these tribes and nations, a few men stand out. They won't bow. They won't bow to foreign idols. They won't worship foreign gods. Their faith is demonstrated through obedience. This is a good lesson on how to live as strangers in a strange land, faith and obedience. The truth they proclaim that God will deliver them beckons, come and taste and you will see that the Lord is good. But right at this moment, we see the opposite. We see a king who thinks of himself as the most powerful man on earth. More powerful than God's, even though he too has a series of encounters with the living God and witnesses the power and majesty of Yahweh. And he has heard the warning of Daniel, the beseeching of Daniel, actually. Last week, DJ talked about how Daniel didn't want to tell the king what the dream meant. But the king assured him, because he trusted Daniel, don't be afraid, tell me. Repent of your mistreatment of the poor and pursue righteousness, and maybe he will expand your kingdom. This time, it cannot be more significant. Remember that Nebuchadnezzar is the longest reign in the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and Nebuchadnezzar has conquered many nations. Babylon has risen to superpower status. But other nations, including Persia and Greece, are on the rise, and Nebuchadnezzar's days are numbered. Other kings are coming for him, but at mo this moment in time, there is another king close at hand. And this, this one doesn't want his throne. He wants something else entirely, and Nebuchadnezzar has been warned. And prudent people heed warnings. So it brings us to my first point. Ignoring sin is an invitation to ruin. And last week we heard this, this warning from the middle of Daniel 4, starting with verse 25. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So here we see the promise of judgment, but where there is also judgment, there is also grace. God, a long-suffering, merciful God, also promises forgiveness and mercy if the king repents and if he stops oppressing the, before, the poor and begins practicing righteousness. 
It continues, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your inequities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. And 12 months after Daniel promises Nebuchadnezzar a reckoning with God, Nebuchadnezzar still has not heeded the warning or humbled himself to the king who rules all kingdoms. So in verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. 12 months later, as the king is walking on the rooftop surveying his kingdom, the chickens come home to roost. It's really no wonder that Nebuchadnezzar is enthralled with his accomplishments because Babylon was a massive, marvelous engineering feat and one of the seven ancient wonders of, <laughs> one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. King Nebuchadnezzar had a massive double wall system built around the entire city. And so on one side, there's walls over 17 miles long and the entire city is surrounded by over 56 miles of rock and walls. The interior wall alone was wide enough that four horses could pass abreast on each side and not touch each other. And the gates that these are, these are planted in, the Ishtar gates, are over 40 feet high. So keep in mind that this is an ancient city. So there's really no trailers dropping off front-end loaders or cranes or bulldozers. Nobody is setting up orange barrels or construction zones. <laughs> Stopping traffic. Cities like these are built by people. Babylon was also known for its magnificent hanging gardens. The gardens were said to be a gift from Nebuchadnezzar to his wife, Amethyst, to remind her of her childhood home in the mountains. And these gardens were fed with an above-ground watering system, probably not like some kind of timed misting thing, but actually these elevated aqueducts. This was a major feat in ancient times. It was a sight to behold, and in this passage we find him walking on the rooftops, observing these magnificent gardens and these massive walls. And Daniel could have said, King, your walls aren't big enough. Nebuchadnezzar is there on the wall, surveying these massive walls and beautiful gardens, when out of his mouth comes the boast... Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? This is a problem with lofty places. Your view is often in the wrong direction. And if there was ever a I wish I hadn't said that moment, this is it. To that point, you wouldn't think that rooftops are a stumbling block for kings, but the Bible definitely tells a different tale for at least two. This rooftop, a rooftop, is a setting for King David's walk into sin as well. David was out on the rooftop and sees Bathsheba bathing, and eventually he falls into lust, brings her into his home, and commits adultery and ultimately murders her husband. And this is David, a man after God's own heart. And that's the problem with sin. In the lineage of Christ, David is basically a superhero. He's in there and he's, <laughs> he's great. <laughs> so David is this superpower of kingdom and uh, God humbles him when he commits sin as well, just like he's about to humble Nebuchadnezzar. And what do they have in common? What does David have in common with a pagan king? And although David's encounter ultimately leads to adultery and murder, the problem for him, just like Nebuchadnezzar, is one of 
ownership, authority, and pride. And both believe that they own it all and can do with it what they want. Nebuchadnezzar, however, doesn't see a woman bathing. Instead, he marvels at all he's accomplished. And this is a far cry from his exhortation after the escape from the fiery furnace. So if we go back to the end of chapter 3, you would see him saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, yet yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. So he then makes a decree that anybody that talks ill of God or the Hebrews will be cut into pieces and their houses will be taken down. So I think at that point, we can't really say that Nebuchadnezzar had had a change of heart. It doesn't seem like Nebuchadnezzar is full of mercy or grace. But he definitely recognizes that the God of the Hebrews is the one who delivered them from the furnace. So the sin of pride causes us to... to to think about things as if they're our own instead of what God has given us. And we all fall right into it. So right now, what is the idol in your life that you cling to? And what is the sin in your life that you ignore? And what warning have you been ignoring? And are you surveying your kingdom from a lofty place, marveling at all that you have, working diligently to earn more, get more, have more, be more, Alistair Begg asks, how hard are you working to get to a place that, become, that became Nebuchadnezzar's greatest undoing? And after 12 months of waiting, God shows up. The passage says that the words were still on the king's mouth. And if we look in verse 31, it says, while they were still on the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven who says, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be in the beasts of the field. So God gives him 12 months of mercy to turn from his sin, and he ignores the warning for a full year. And a year is a long time to ignore a warning. Remember that the king is frantic over this dream, and he, he, he summons all his magicians and mages to come and interpret this dream, and none of them can figure it out. So he's so distraught over it, he brings Daniel in, and remember that Daniel is upset by this dream because it's basically proclaiming judgment on the king if he doesn't repent. So the king really gives him license to speak freely, and he tells him, you're about to be cut off. So then he ignores it after that for 12 months. And I don't think we can say that he didn't think about it during that time. You remember it kept him up at night. He had this dream. He called all his magicians and mages. He gets Daniel. So it's, he's, he's probably fixated, I would say, I'm imagining if I got this news and then I got something proclaimed to me, I might be thinking about it a little bit, but he doesn't, he doesn't act on it. He doesn't heed it. He learns to ignore it. If you've experienced conviction over sin not dealt with, then you know it's like a thorn in the flesh. And it's the kind under the surface, maybe a little broken off. You can scratch it. You can pinch it. You can rub it with your fingernail. But until you dig it out, it will not relent. Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, encouraged Daniel to interpret the dream, but has decided to ignore the warning to his detriment. Tozer says in his sermon, Ministry of the Night, if God has singled you out to be a special object of his grace, you may expect him to honor you 
with stricter discipline and greater suffering than less favored ones are called to endure. It's difficult to think about that and think about who the more favored suffering, more favored for suffering or less favored are, because in fact we're all suffering. And it's easy to apply a worldly value um, because common sense will tell us that some people are suffering more than others. And don't hear me say that my earthly self can't tell the difference between a hangnail and cancer or a slightly swollen elbow and a broken bone because I have a slightly swollen elbow. But understand that we are living in a post-fall bodies on a post-fall planet, riddled with sin and waiting for perfection. And in the middle of our time of tension, knowing that our Lord and Savior has come, died, and been raised, and he's coming again for a time we'll establish an eternal kingdom here on earth. Until that day, we are all suffering every single second of every single day. And this is where the gospel crashes through our reality But there are those that don't know it and haven't heard it. And we must change that. Each of us who knows and loves Christ must fulfill the Great Commission, whether it be next door, across the pond. And there is always going to be someone to talk to. And and someone told me recently, immigration is God's way of bringing people of every tribe and every nation right to your neighborhood. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. 2 Corinthians 14 through 17. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from, fragrance from death to death. To other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many people, peddlers of God's words, But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Pastor DJ said last week, we are the prophets who bear witness to the word and also the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming a message of life in Christ. Nebuchadnezzar here is having his own encounter with the Holy God, and God has waited long enough for him to repent. And God often delays mercy and judgment while he waits for us to repent. And sometimes we experience pain and suffering while he waits for us to repent. And we know the stories of the Israelites, and we can almost point and laugh at kind of the whole thing. I mean, the next day, they're making a golden calf. They go into the promised land, and then they tell them that we can't go in there. They end up wandering the wilderness. And they choose instead to wander the wilderness because of their lack of trust. I know many of you are saying that we would not have ignored the warning. But chances are good that you're ignoring a warning every day. And I don't have far to go in my own life to see this carried out. In a very benign way, as an example, I have an extended battery on my phone. So with that extended battery, essentially it will power my phone, full brightness, all my apps, Everything playing at once for 20 hours. The only thing I have to do is push the button on the back to turn it on. So many times what I find, though, is my phone will tell me that it's got 15% battery life. And then it'll tell me I have 10% battery life. And then it'll tell me I have 5% battery life. 
And eventually I'll notice that I'm not getting texts or calls and I'll look and sure enough, my phone is powered down even though I've got an extended battery that'll power for 20 hours. So now I have to wait. I have to push the button, wait for it to charge enough for it to boot and for it to start up. So in almost every single time, what flashes through my head is how stupid my phone is. It's a stupid phone. I can do the same thing to sin. And Alex and I were talking last week about movies. And I will often sit through a movie filled with sin because it's good. And isn't that rationalizing? And that's ignoring the warning. It had a great message, and other than the terrible and godly language or the sexual content that makes me squirm a little, it was a pretty good movie. And Logan is my go-to example of this. And I could sit through, we were soldiers just fine, even though language is terrible, but I couldn't sit through 30 minutes of Logan, and I had to turn it off. Now, I'm not saying that this is the same for everybody. I'm saying that the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon us even for things like what we're listening to or what we're watching or what we're reading. And not obeying that is ignoring a warning. And it leads to greater sin in your life and can lead you down a road that you best avoid. And all this comes from we are a set-apart people. The power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin in our lives and we've been bought for a price by Christ. And more importantly, not for a price, but for a purpose. That purpose is not to cave in to pet sins, but instead demonstrate the power of the gospel to the world that needs to hear it. In regards to suffering, Tim Keller says, in the secular view, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life, but only as an interruption. Yet God's word tells us in 1 Peter that the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you has suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And we see as Jesus was leaving in, chapter, in John chapter 16, 33, Jesus tells them, in this world you have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. And if God desires this for himself, it means... Self-discipline, self-denial, and yielding to the Holy Spirit in matters of temptation and sin. And I guarantee, friends, spending two hours in the word of prayer or the word of the Lord will be much more satisfying than wrestling with the Holy Spirit over whether or not you should obey and change the channel or close the book. So I think the problem with this is it's fear and it's fear of what is a lot of what we don't have. And I could definitely use a little fear in regards to the sin in my life. And Tom Watson said, a child of God fears because the gate is narrow, but hopes because the gate is open. So John Elias, an 18th century Welsh evangelist, used a vivid illustration to talk about the conscience silencing that takes place when we're ignoring a warning. And he talked about this, this, he goes to this village and a blacksmith has this new dog. And the dog, every time the hammer hits the anvil, the dog barks. And this goes on and he visits several times 
and each time the dog barks a little bit less until he gets to the point where he goes to the village and the, the blacksmith is hammering away at the anvil and the dog is laying asleep at the smith. That's an example of how we can become immune to the warnings of the sin in our life. And this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is going through as Daniel tells him that his day of judgment is coming and yet he ignores the warning for 12 months. And we pick it up in verse 33 where it says, immediately the word was fulfilled. The Aramaic word here for immediately is immediately. I've always wanted to say that. There's no tricky interpretive problems here. After 12 months of watching, God lets him have it. And he lets him have it with the words that are still in his mouth. But it's not the words that betray him. It's, it's his heart. Coming to my second point in verse 33, there are worse things to lose, there are worse things to lose than just the kingdom. Two things I remember from the last time I preached were I didn't need to drink as much water and I could actually see my notes without glasses. So Nebuchadnezzar is driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So once again, Nebuchadnezzar is driven out of out of the city, and he's made to be like an animal. And again, it's not his boast that gets him into trouble, it's his heart. And Matthew 15, 18 says, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these are the things that defile a man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. The prophecy is fulfilled. Nebuchadnezzar is driven from among men, is cast out of the kingdom to live as an animal. And this is always our default. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, we are always begging God for more time. If you think about sin in your life, are you postponing dealing with it because it's become comfortable? And are you ignoring the warning? A.W. Tozer again says, if God sets you out to make an unusual Christian, he is not likely to be as gentle as he is usually pictured by popular teachers. A sculptor does not use a manicure set to reduce the rude, unshapely marble to a thing of beauty. The saw, the hammer, and the chisel are cruel tools, but without them, the rough stone must remain forever formless and unbeautiful. To do a supreme work of grace within you will take from your heart everything that you love most. Everything you trust in will go from you. Piles of ashes will lie where your most precious treasures used to be. Think about that for a second. The hammer and the chisel are his tools. And God carves the sin off you. And when we come to faith, there are some big chunks that he lops off right in the beginning. And our Christian walk over time is basically just that. It's God removing these things from us as we become more like the, in the image of his son. 
So God's judgment comes to Nebuchadnezzar quickly, and he immediately hacks big chunks off of Nebuchadnezzar. So much so, in fact, that he doesn't even resemble a human any longer. His hair is as long as feathers, and his nails are like claws. Daniel's warning against Nebuchadnezzar's disease was basically about pride, and his symptoms were he was merciless, oppressing the poor, not seeking righteousness. Daniel had told him, show mercy, that perhaps God may show you mercy. And instead, he hardens his heart, and God strips everything away, including the very thing that the poor have that he now does not. God takes his humanity from him. The very thing that distinguishes him from the animals, God removes, or at least obscures. So for a time, seven periods to be exact, which is not exact, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is not even human. And this is our special connection with, with us as humans in our deity. God, in the, Genesis, in the Genesis account, he says that the animals were created and that they were good. And it talks about animals as being living beings, but it doesn't say that God formed them from the dust and breathed life into them. That's reserved for man, and God gives him breath and gives him dominion over these animals. So here God sets man's position over the animals and gives him dignity. And I have a dog. Her name is Millie. And she is dear to me, but she is not human. And if you watch her for more than a couple of minutes, you will see that she's, in fact, not dignified either. <laughs> so his humanity and his identity. Many people have tried to explain this and discredit this account because they can't find any evidence of this kind of issue in the pages of history. They can't find issues or, or historical record of Nebuchadnezzar acting like an animal, which is not surprising, honestly. It would have been unlikely for the history books to record Nebuchadnezzar's madness. So Sinclair or Ferguson and others describe basically a couple different conditions that Nebuchadnezzar could have been suffering from. Lycanthropy, which is men acting like wolves, wolves, and, <laughs> and boanthropy, where men act like cattle, or people act like cattle. All these are mental illnesses, and if you look in the, the DSM 4 through 8, you'll see them in there. But whether or not it was an actual condition, I don't know. What I do know is that God gave it to him for a purpose. So if we move on to our third point, which is humility and repentance bring restoration. In verse 34 and 36. So, as I said a minute ago, it goes on for seven periods, and those seven periods, as DJ alluded to last week, are the, the seven's the number of perfection. So this is in the, in the, in the perfect amount of time. So if you, if you think about some of the other passages about forgiveness, and Peter asked how many times should I forgive him. This is basically the same thing. So seven periods of time is not seven years, it's not seven months, it's not seven days. It's just the right amount of time. 
So we know it's longer than seven months from the description of Nebuchadnezzar's ailment, unless it happened instantaneously as his hair grew as long as feathers, his nails grew as long as, as claws. And just from ourselves, it seems like a very long time. And seven's a very significant number. As I said before, it's the number of perfection, but there's a lot of different things in the Bible that establish it as the number of perfection. One of which is our calendar week. So the creation uh, narrative establishes seven as this perfect period of time with six days and God resting on the seventh. And our calendar year, our calendar week to this, even now is used on this pattern of six days and one day of rest. In uh, Exodus 22.30, the animals have to be seven days old before they can be sacrificed to the Lord. And uh, lepers were commanded to bathe in the River Jordan seven times. And you can find that in 2 Kings 5 and 10. In Joshua 6, the Israelites were commanded to march around Jericho seven times for seven days. And Joshua sent seven priests with seven trumpets to do that. So this is the number for divine completion, although we don't know exactly how long it was. Like I said, I think it's safe to say that it was just the right amount of time. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar thought it was just the right amount of time also. In God's perfect time, at the end of seven periods, Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to heaven. <coughs> Excuse me. And we, we shouldn't miss the contrast here. Because this is exactly what got Nebuchadnezzar in the in trouble the first time. He wasn't looking the right direction. He was looking down and not up. We see him falling as low as he can go, stripped of everything, all his worldly trappings, and also his humanity, he begins to praise God. 34, chapter 4, verse 34 records, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And quoting Tozer again, he says, slowly you will discover God's love in your suffering. Your heart will begin to approve the whole thing and you will learn from yourself what all the schools in the world cannot teach you, the healing action of faith without supporting pleasure. You will feel and understand the ministry of the night. It's power to purify, to detach, and to humble, and to destroy the fear of death. What is more important to you at the moment, the fear of life. And God's mercy here is just as swift Nebuchadnezzar is restored to a station along with his sanity. And this happens immediately as soon as he looks up. We see the adjustment to his gaze. And the humbled king is restored. Nebuchadnezzar admits that God even gives him more. And throughout the Bible, we see this same pattern. We saw it in the, the prodigal in the pig pen. And we see it in Job at the end of his, his narrative with God, where these men have been stripped of, of everything through either their choices or God's sovereign choice, they're restored and they're given more. 
There is much debate about whether or not Nebuchadnezzar demonstrated the kind of faith sufficient to point toward salvation. But we, see, we do here see confession and we see repentance. In verse 37, we come to our third point. Or our fourth point. God rules both heaven and earth. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in his pride, walk in pride, he is able to humble. And this verse brings about the theme of the chapter that God rules earth as well as heaven and he is able to humble even kings. God declares God's righteousness here and God's judgment. I'm sorry, and God's justice. Nebuchadnezzar even agrees that not only is it God's prerogative to humble kings, but it's okay that he does it. And you can see in Proverbs that the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord and the rivers of water. He turneth it whosoever he will. So God turns the hearts of kings. Just like he does our own. And I'm not sure what personal crisis you're experiencing at the moment. It's fair to say if you aren't in the middle of one right now, then you're coming to one. And this same God who rescued Nebuchadnezzar from his own pride and cruelty, he is able to rescue you from your circumstances, from your sin, from your little faith. If you but humble yourself, repent of your pride, and whatever it is that keeps you from him. Nebuchadnezzar had 12 months to repent and didn't. My warning is, don't wait another day to confess and repent and to walk out a new life in Christ. Thomas Watson said, Eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset, while eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. And we started off today talking about this ark in the Bible. And this is the case here. All these passages point towards another king. Another king who is humbled and then exalted. Who lived a perfect life. Who was tried as a criminal and killed among them. This king was raised from the dead and reigns today from heaven here on earth. None of this was from pride. All of it was from love. This is the Lord we serve and follow. And at just at the perfect moment, he was perfectly born, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death on a cross so that you might have eternal life and be filled with the Holy Spirit promised from our Lord himself. Not only did he perfectly bear all your sins, both past, present, and future, but he perfectly gave his righteousness to you. As if you never sinned at all, the great exchange. As we prepare for communion, I beg of you to heed the warning. Repent of your sins, believe, and live. And you will find joy, strength, family, and exaltation in the Son. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this example of uh, timelessness, of, of you reigning over kings in heaven and on earth, Lord. And we just pray that you would humble us, that you would give us the power to heed the warning, Lord, through the power of the Spirit. Pray that we would put to death 
the deeds of the flesh, the power of the Spirit, and that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see in Scripture and in our lives anything keeping us from you. We pray that we would not wait for it too late, but we would do it now. It's in Jesus' name, amen.